Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces, and as usual these days, I'm here on Zoom with Stephanie Carvin. Stephanie, what's our topic today? We're really lucky to be joined by two amazing guests. We're joined by Chimmy Lamo, who is a student at University of Toronto and was actually formerly a student president, actually, but we will get into some of the issues with that, and Alex Neve from Amnesty International. And the reason we have them on today is because we're going to talk about clandestine foreign influence in Canada. Now, regular listeners, we've talked about this before, but just as a reminder, clandestine foreign influence in Canada are activities within or relating to Canada that are detrimental to the interests of Canada and are clandestine or deceptive in nature or involve a threat to any person. And the reason it's important is I think when a lot of Canadians today hear about clandestine foreign influence, they automatically think of Russian bots or trolls on, on social media or misinformation. And that's important. But they also need to understand that in Canada for a long period of time, there has been the targeted harassment of individuals on Canadian soil by foreign governments for the purpose of intimidating them, making sure they don't speak out to tell their story, uh, sometimes to exploit them uh, financially. But in this case, we're going to focus on the targeted harassment of individuals in Canada by China. And what's great about that is Amnesty has been spending a lot of uh, time and energy on this. They've been interviewing people in the diaspora. So we're really lucky that both uh, Chimmy and Alex are going to be here with us today. Great. So thanks very much again to both of you for joining us. And Alex, I think probably the place to start is with your report, which was issued very recently. As I understand it, it's an updated version of an earlier report that came out in 2017. Uh, and there's a lot of detail here. There was a lot of investigative reporting that Amnesty undertook on this issue of clandestine foreign influence. This is not the only time that human rights groups have looked at this issue. I recall that Human Rights Watch had a report a few years ago on a similar issue. And in fact, Human Rights Watch, back a decade and a half ago, looked at intimidation by the Tamil Tigers. So both state and non-state actors within Canada exerting pressure on a diaspora community. I wonder, to start us off, in relation to this most recent report, Alex, whether you could walk us through some of the key findings or observations uh, that you made. Uh, absolutely, and thanks to both you and Stephanie for the opportunity, and it's always great to, to share airtime with Chemi, who's very articulate and has important personal views on this herself, of course. Let me set up the report a little bit before I dive into the findings, because I think this is worth noting as well. As you both stressed in your openings, this topic of clandestine activity in Canada by foreign governments is big. And even when you narrow it down to this question of intimidating individuals, putting pressure on individuals within the diaspora community, that's big as well. We drilled down to look at something very specific, which is within that landscape of intimidating individuals, putting pressure on individuals. We wanted to look at the cases where it was human rights acts, where it was people who were being targeted and intimidated because they were speaking out or in some way mobilizing about the range of very serious, as we all know, human rights issues across China and, and Hong Kong that in recent years have only been worsened. 
And where this all originated was Amnesty International is an active member and I chair a long-standing coalition known as the Canadian Coalition on Human Rights in China, a range of about 12 organizations, the Canada-Tibet Committee, Students for a Free Tibet Canada, uh, Uyghur groups, Falun Dafa, pro-democracy groups, Hong Kong groups. And as uh, it became more and more commonplace as we were getting together in those meetings, for my colleagues from a whole range of those groups, to be sharing personal accounts and deeply troubling personal accounts of the threats, the intimidation they were receiving directly, other members of their groups were receiving directly, interference with their phones and their internet access, threats being made against family members back in China. And it became very clear uh, that there really was nowhere to go. I shouldn't say nowhere to go. There were many places to go, but none of them were delivering any sense of, of recourse. So at that point, we knew that we had to start really bringing this all together, that this couldn't just be a disparate number of individual experiences that kind of go nowhere uh, and are never brought to the government's attention. But we really needed to compile things uh, so that we could put in front of the government a clear picture as to how extensive it was, how serious it is, and most importantly, what we feel needs to be done to address it. So the first report was back in 2017. And even at that point, we were very clear to say to the government, this is a very troubling and distressing report, and there's a lot in here. But our sense is this is probably only the tip of the iceberg. We haven't done a, an exhaustive cross-Canada research endeavor. We've really just pulled the accounts from the people who are around this table, the groups who are part of this coalition. The real story of how extensive this is much wider. That was three years ago. We had to come back to it again this year because nothing had happened. And I'm sure at a point we'll get into what kinds of recommendations we've been making. Uh, but the government hadn't been taking any steps uh, to implement those recommendations. And if anything, in recent years, and Chemi's story will make this very clear, but, but also what's been happening in the Hong Kong community and the Uyghur community, things have been getting worse, far worse. So we came back to it. We call it an update to the report, but, uh, but it is as lengthy and comprehensive as the initial report was. We've put recommendations in front of the government yet again. And sadly, several months since the report was provided to the government, once again, there's been no progress on the recommendations. I think this might be a good time to bring you into the conversation, Achimi. So Alex has set the context, and Alex, we'll circle back to you and talk about uh, some of the uh, more general observations you make as well as your recommendations. But Jimmy, you have a, a very particular experience in, in this space. So I wonder if you, for our listeners, could talk about what brings you to this podcast and, and what experiences you have had in relation to uh, foreign interference. Mm -hmm. I just want to start off by thanking Craig and Stephanie for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to share space with Alex. It's really no doubt that the Chinese government is ruthlessly trying to crush all dissent and now are on a global mission to be silencing any sort of criticism about their policies and commenting on their brutal human rights record at large, even in a free and open society like Canada. And being a Tibetan Buddhist, we talk about values like empathy to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes to get a glimpse of what they might be going through. And I'd encourage your listeners to imagine. Imagine living as a stateless refugee. Because of the illegal occupation of your country, you have to move several countries to find a better home and a safe home for your kids. This is the case for many Canadians, uh, including my parents. And in February 2019, just about a year ago, 
despite the years of activism and advocacy work that I've been doing within the student spaces and my community spaces, I became the target of the wrath of something that was most likely crafted by the Chinese Communist Party. I ran for the student elections in February 2019 at University of Toronto Scarborough. And before the results had even come out, my phone had started going off with notifications. I got over 10,000 comments on my social media posts and then also an online petition against me simply for being a candidate. They didn't want me as their president simply because of my Tibetan identity, not because of the work that I've been doing, uh, not because of my capabilities, because I was a Tibetan that yearned for home and worked to build in her community. The comments were pretty harsh. They included rape threats, uh, death threats. Uh, they didn't just target me, but they also included my family. Uh, there were comments to be specific, like, when I see you, I'll punch you. Or there was even one that said, your mom is dead. I kid you not, the moment I saw that comment, I recall having to call my mother to check in with her, also making sure that I didn't frighten her. So pretending that everything was okay, I had to call her and try to figure out whether or not she was okay. Throughout my presidential term, although things slowed down on social media, I continued to receive occasional threats, degrading comments. And then, of course, we had students on my campus who were the ones that were giving me these threats that really roamed around my campus, uh, would often stare, take photos of me or people that communicated with me, and I was being watched, sometimes even going to the washroom. But this experience that I speak of was very personal to me, but in regards to the Tibetan community and many other human rights activists in Canada, it's not really new news. It's something that we've been going through for a long time, and we call it the tentacles of the Chinese government. Just recently, a year ago, again, there was a fake Tibetan organization that was created within in Canada, where their banner at their event, their major event, didn't even include the Tibetan language. So uh, how ironic is that? Not only did that happen, in the same event, we had Canadian um, members of provincial parliament present, and there was also fake letters that were forged from the Minister Hussein's office and Prime Minister Trudeau. I don't know about the follow-ups in regards to that. However, this is an, a glimpse of the tentacles of the Chinese government that we've been seeing from a long time ago. It's the first time we're seeing it be super personal, uh, at least within the Tibetan community, and it was right at me. But we knew that this was present from many years before that. And right now, we have still many universities that have very strong ties with entities like Confucius Institute where students are often bullied for taking up space, talking about the human rights abuse in, in China or in East Turkestan or in Tibet or in Hong Kong or even Taiwan. They have their posters taken down during their events or they're not allowed to bring flags to their uh, schools all of a sudden. So there's so much stuff that is happening within just academic spaces where these universities, Canadian universities, again, in Canada are censoring Canadian students because of the influence or the power that the Chinese government has within their university. And this isn't just in regards to just the Tibetan students or the Hong Kongers or the Taiwanese. We need to even start thinking about the Chinese international students that are paying four to five times 
more than a domestic student to be here, but then are having to be incognito spies for the Chinese embassy, where they're being bullied to follow the party line and go protest against any event that is happening at the university rather than focusing on their own education. That in 2018, I hosted an event where we hosted the president of the Central Tibetan Administration, Lotsang Sangye. And then again, we had uh, impromptu protests by U of T Chinese international students. Some of them didn't even realize why they were there when we asked questions. And they're there to protest against our event. All in all, I just want to say that no student in Canada who wishes to serve their community should have to check if they're being followed. No Canadian should have to worry about their, their child being punched, raped, or killed for standing up for something that they care about let alone their own community. No student leader should have to see active groups on their campus self-censoring themselves because of the fear of going through what I had to go through. And this is a really time, I think, for Canadians all across to wake up and start reassessing our ties with China and the Chinese government and start holding them accountable for the human rights violations at large. One, because we call ourselves as Canadians champion of human rights, Two, starting at home and starting to care for Canadians and their well-being right here. Shimmy, thanks very much. It, it sounds like a, a, a deeply unpleasant experience. Now, maybe I can follow up on two points. The first is that you said you, you believed it was orchestrated by China. And I'm wondering what indicia there were that suggested that was the case. And Alex, this is also uh, an issue that I'd like to address with you as well, because your report dwells on this as well. The extent to which the Chinese state is implicated in these activities and is not simply the spontaneous act of a patriotic uh, Chinese, as sometimes the Chinese government claims. So that's the first issue. And then and second, Jimmy, and in terms of remedies, in the wake of this activity, did you seek any remedies from whether it be the university or the government, and, and if so, what happened? In regards to question number one, the reason why I say most likely crafted and backed by the Chinese government, in my case specifically, is because I personally, as a student leader, had to make a decision of not putting criminal cases or <laughs> criminal cases against my own students that I chose and I swore to serve. And so it put me in a really difficult situation uh, where... One, here I was promising our students a better future, being there for them and being their voice. And two, literally now going back and saying, you're posing a threat to my own personal experience, hence why now I'm going to stop putting criminal charges against or, or having uh, international Chinese students go through some sort of severe investigation about who it was, what it was. And it was very conflicting for me, hence why I say most likely crafted when I talk about my case. But at large, there's a pattern of uh, CSSA, which are Chinese Students and Scholars Associations that are present all across the world in different academic institutions that have been proven to have very strong ties with the Chinese embassy. And this tie isn't just in regards to their education and their international student visas. There has been many articles that have been posted in reports across North America, specifically in the U.S., where the Chinese embassy tells and literally bullies these Chinese international students to go out there and protest, to go and follow the party line, make sure that they're quiet and silenced about other political issues. And my personal case, I was aware that the Chinese embassy was involved because I had experiences of Chinese students who didn't want to come 
uh, off the record came to me and asked me to step down. Personally came to me and said, you don't want to get into this. This is going to be, uh, it's going to become really bad. You should just step down. It's safer for you and for all of us. And I had some Chinese students who were actually my friends prior to it. Then right after the event, no longer wanted to communicate with me and instead started messaging me in different social media platforms as if they had never known me and asking me for a professional statement via my Instagram DM. And this, this message that they send is, hello, dear Chimmy, we would like to request an official statement. And it, it seemed like an email from an organization rather than my friend who was talking to me prior to elections and almost trying to help me. So that's one. And then in regards to your number two about remedies, because I'm um, already involved within the student movement, I had a lot of uh, access to the head of safety and security at the university. That's often the place where I go to complaining about systemic issues within our community or a university. So because of that privilege, I was able to just get to the head of safety at my university. And what I was given was a walkie-talkie to keep myself safe uh, within those days. And then was told that it's going to take about a week to get through and sift through the comments to find out if there's a criminal offense of some sort or an actual threat is what they called it. And so I gave them the time because, again, I was debating and conflicted between the two roles I was playing as a student leader, trying to represent my university, but also trying to keep myself and my family safe. And so with the walkie-talkie, I dealt with it. But then just weeks after, there was no follow-up. I had to go follow up with the university. And then when they did that, of course, we had a lot of international media paying attention. And then with that pressure, the university started acting up and said, okay, we've sifted through the messages. It seems like there is an actual threat. All of these comments are what we were able to translate. And it seems like there's a threat to your life. And then said, we'll present you the, with the option of going to Toronto Police. We can hand it over to them. I was like, okay, I would like to do that. And then I was moved to Toronto Police where I had to repeat my whole story again. There was no sort of safety precautions or steps taken to make sure that I was safe in regards to it, apart from a walkie-talkie and increased patrolling, which is what I asked in my office because I was constantly being watched. Um, Toronto Police never got back. After that, I did have some encounters with RCMP entities, but I've never heard back anything. And also these were all within months apart, nor did I ever get access to a report or something that said, this is what we came up with. The only report that I even heard of was the one that our university made and transferred it to the Toronto Police, which I asked for access, but didn't get any information in regards to it. So I'm just up in the air and I lasted my uh, whole year of my presidential term with students constantly watching, making noises, yelling and running away. Uh, Alex, so there's this question that, that Jimmy raises about attribution, the attribution of this conduct to the Chinese state. And then I suppose the other related issue is how representative is this experience that Jimmy describes in relation to the findings you make in this report? I think both of what we've just been hearing from Jimmy on the, this question of who's behind it, uh, and then secondly, the, the question of who to turn to, where is recourse, are absolutely reflected more widely in the report. And, and I would echo very much what she's described in her own personal experience as being consistent with our wider findings. So when it comes to this question of how can we be so sure that the Chinese state is behind this, she talked about the sense of pattern. And I think that really is overwhelmingly 
what we point to as well in a whole variety of ways. Number one, in so many of these instances, whether it's the kinds of individualized threats people receive online in in digital space or on their phones, or the kinds of hateful things that are said and chanted at counter-protests, it's just become so apparent that the individuals are parroting well-established lines from the Chinese government. There's, There's nothing spontaneous or creative that's reflective of, okay, here's a group of people who have their own strongly held personal views. It's very much a script that's been written in Beijing made its way to Canada and is now being delivered in that context. Another thing that that we've noted in many instances, and this is particularly in the protest situations, is how orchestrated the counter-protesters are. They arrive en masse from nowhere, they do their shtick for X amount of period of time, and then boom, they're gone again. They're being bust in, bust out. Again, it's not this sense of, as we see on the other side of the demonstrations, real spontaneous mobilizing and organizing and people coming from different sectors. There's clearly someone behind it, and it almost seems certain that it's the Chinese state. Obviously, whenever asked, the embassy consistently denies it. Almost always, though, then moves on to make some sort of comment that shows complete sympathy with the the motives and views of the counter-protesters, certainly never criticizes their act of violence and does anything to deter such um, activities in the past. So it's this mounting sense of pattern, which is just consistent across all of these instances. We don't, in the report, say we don't have the conclusive evidence. We, In none of these cases, are we able to say with beyond a reasonable doubt, criminal law certainty, or even at a lower standard, we are certain uh, that this is originating with the Chinese government. And to a certain degree, that brings us to the second point of recourse and investigations and remedy. Part of why we're lacking that is there haven't been the kinds of probing investigations to really look into individual instances like uh, what happened to Chimmy or the kind of broader concerns coming out of some of these protests. And that is reflective of the fact that, and as Chimmy really, really powerfully described it in her own experience, people turn here, people turn there, and nothing really leads anywhere. There's excuses. Um, You you go to a municipal police force. They tell you should go to the RCMP. You go to the RCMP. They tell you you should go to CSIS. You go to CSIS. They may be pleased to receive the information, but will never share anything back. They may suggest this is a diplomatic affair. You should go to foreign affairs. Along the way, somebody may say you should be checking in with your MP or MPP. Somebody else will say, really, you should be going to the media. Let's publicize this. Uh, In a few instances, Pete, we've seen this within the Falun Gong community, for instance, have taken things in their hands and have mounted their own legal challenges, have gone to human rights tribunals or even the courts. That's, of course, not going to deliver any kind of remedy overnight. That's a long and protracted process if it leads anywhere. Just a complete morass of nothingness really is what people face with. And, And amongst other things, it means, sadly, we don't have a clear and convincing answer to the important question you're asking, Craig, how can we be sure as to who's behind this? Stephanie. 
Tammy, when I hear your story, I, I think of uh, another recent case, which was in, I believe, March of 2019, which is Rukia Turdish, who was a Uyghur activist and human rights camp- campaigner. And she w- was speaking out about the Uyghurs in their plight in China, of course. And, and just for those who may not be aware, there's a, estimated to be somewhere between a million and three million Uyghurs who are uh, currently detained in, in uh, fairly terrible conditions in China and are subject to surveillance monitoring. And she was speaking out about that. And her experience very much echoes yours, maybe not in the sense that you had this kind of year-long campaign and you still have this targeted harassment. But again, and, and Alex, just to echo your point, there's WeChat messages that suggested that the Chinese consulate in Toronto was very much aware of what's happening and encouraging it. And when they were asked about it, they basically said, we quote, we strongly support the just and patriotic actions of Chinese students, end quote. So my question is, and I'll direct it to you, Jimmy, but the amnesty studies highlights so many different kinds of harassment, cyber phone harassment, hate propaganda, in-person monitoring, kind of harassment at demonstrations, in harassment in person in Canada, harassment of family in China, interference in freedom of assembly. And you've already spoken about how you experienced all of that. So I'm wondering, in light of the government not acting, perhaps in a way to protect Canadians or people in Canada who are subject to these pressures, are you coordinating with other groups to to strategize or share experiences or in some cases, perhaps just even provide emotional support? Because I can't imagine how devastating it must be to go through your experience. Thanks, Steph. Definitely. I think in regards to having that space for us to connect, I think in all of the speeches that I do or when I reach out to young people across the world, I talk about how if it wasn't for my community, specifically my own Tibetan community, I wouldn't be where I am today or if in fact, even alive. And that sense of community goes beyond the Tibetan community in a larger scale when we start talking about all of the different experiences that other human rights activists have had. Our coalition, the report that Alex has been referring to, has been a product of the Canadian Coalition of Human Rights Relations in China. And definitely, I would say, if it wasn't for the community, I wouldn't be here today. And that's something that I mean when I say when wherever I go. In terms of emotional support, that's there. But in regards to tangible, actual institutional support, I don't think there is any, which is why in the recommendations in the report, we have mentioned pursuing an independent public investigation about the interference, the intimidation and harassment tactics that the Chinese government is using. Also asking for a hotline of some sort where Canadians who are going through this experience can reach out to. When I was first going through this, I absolutely had no idea how to deal with it, let alone the head and safety of my school, when we had one-on-one conversation, he was joking on the first day when he saw 2,000 comments, was like, it's a 2,000 right now, and maybe tomorrow it'll be at 10,000. And Jimmy, maybe we have one Mandarin speaker downtown, and he has to translate everything. So you really think we can finish this tomorrow? No. And I looked at him, and I was like, okay, 
And I was just waiting for him to continue. And lo and behold, by tomorrow, there were over 10,000 comments. After that, I went to 15,000 comments. And even the head and safety of my university, which is not just any university, we are so-called the best university in Canada with U of T or the rankings. And so if they're going to hold themselves to the standard, then how come your head of safety department is not able to understand the seriousness of this issue? And so having to deal with these type of entities within these institutions was definitely disappointing. But I guess that's what we go back to in terms of the recommendations of the report, in terms of the support that we need from these institutions. Um, So to me, I I don't want to excuse what's happened, because to me, it seems like there's been an inexcusable lack of support for everything that you're going through or have been through. But do you think that some of it comes from a lack of understanding of what clandestine foreign influence is and why it's actually a problem? It seems to me, perhaps in the last two years, there really has been an improvement. We have the China-Canada Committee in uh, Parliament that's investigating some of uh, these malicious behaviors. Do you you think that the understanding of what clandestine foreign influence is improving in Canada? And does that in any way make you hopeful that some of your recommendations or any of the recommendations in the report may be taken up? Mm-hmm. One, I do agree that it's because of lack of information in regards to the general public and maybe is excusable for university in one sense. But in regards to a federal government or a provincial government where although these personal attacks have been more recent, these not-for-profit organizations or human activist groups that have been existing in Canada for decades have already been experiencing this. They have received multiple complaints, reports, academic material that has been put together, that has been presented to them, not just in regards to the problem, but also recommended many recommendations on ways that they can make Canadians safer. But have not been acted upon. And for example, the 2017 report, and then again for different activist groups to come together and rewrite another updated report in 2020 and not seeing major changes. For example, the hotline. It's not the first time that this experience has happened. I can tell you of multiple experiences that Tibetan students have gone through, just Tibetan students, from things like not being able to bring their Tibetan flag to an international student festival, like where they're selling food at a one of those festivals at school. The head of the international student festival group sent an email to a student saying, you're allowed to bring information about Tibet, but please don't bring your flag. And when she questioned why, they said, Confucius Institute is one of the funders and we got an email from them to say that you can't. And they welcome you to join the China table if you'd like. Hmm. So these are experiences. Yeah, no. (laughs) Not a thing, yeah. These are experiences that Tibetan students, and these are experiences of erasure, literally identity erasure that is happening in Canadians, on Canadian soil. And That's something that happened many years ago. And so many of these experiences have been accumulating. Not everyone has been getting the attention from our media. And I am hopeful because my mom always says hope for the best and prepare for the worst. That's why I'm hopeful. However, in regards to seeing the pattern or the work that our governments have been taking on, it's been truly disappointing because it makes me want to question why my experience isn't enough for the government to take action that has been recommended for many years and really questions whether or not I am being valued as a Canadian. 
So if I can just build on that, then I think sometimes politicians don't act if Canadians aren't pushing them to act or if they're not raising it as a concern or if they don't think there's votes in it. Based on your experiences, based on your report, Alex, and, and Alex, maybe it'd be good to answer this. Why does clandestine foreign influence matter to Canadians? Obviously, it's terrible that these things are happening on our soil. But can you perhaps also speak to uh, the broader context and why Canadians should be more seized, perhaps, of these issues, of these events that are happening right now? And Alex, before you answer, if I could just interject, the discussion so far has been harassment, especially harassment on university campuses that impede the freedom of expression and association of students. Are there other human rights issues that are implicated by the Chinese government? And of course, one hears tale of threats issued against family members who are still in China itself. And and while I'm not familiar with reports out of Canada suggesting that the Chinese government has effectively snatched people and removed them uh, to China itself, I believe that has been the pattern in at least some other jurisdictions. And at least some reports have suggested that the Chinese government has threatened family members at home in order to induce self-propelled rendition from Canada by persons who feel coerced into returning to China. So are there other human rights issues that are raised going to Stephanie's question about the broader concern that Canadians should have? So absolutely. And I think one of the things the 2020 report highlights is that we did note between 2017 and 2020 that one of the things that was changing and intensifying was this dramatic increase in what was happening on university campuses. Uh, and that's why that is a theme uh, in Jimmy's uh, particular instance, but others that are highlighted in the report, uh, that that's very clearly a problem. But at the same time, going back to the 2017 report, but also in the 2020 report, we document a wide range of content uh, in which this happens. We've talked earlier about the, the many ways in which it happens when demonstrations are being held. Certainly across all of the organizations, Falun Gong, Uyghur, Tibetan, Taiwanese, Hong Kong, pro-democracy, individual activists are receiving threats on their own email and phones, and, and not just mild threats of rape, threats of death, threats of real violence, very serious concerns to go to your specific question about family members back in China being threatened. That's a consistent pattern, not just experienced here in Canada, uh, but in countries around the world. Last year, Amnesty International put out a report globally documenting the ways in which Uyghurs all around the world uh, are subject to these kinds of threats and intimidation in all instances. Uh, in particular, threats and intimidation as to what would happen to their family members back in China was consistent. And of course, we all know the horrific things that are happening to Uyghurs uh, in China right now. So imagine if suddenly you're fearful that if I speak out or if I go to a demonstration, my mother or my grandfather or my aunt is suddenly going to be rounded up and, and sent to one of the incarceration camps. That's a very powerful tactic of intimidation. Your question about abduction is not a, a fanciful one to be asking. While we haven't documented instances of it happening on Canadians, I would say two things here. There's a long-standing case of concern around a man named Wang Bingzhang, who, who wasn't a Canadian citizen, but had very strong uh, connections to Canada. He was one of the very first Chinese international students that were allowed to come and pursue studies in Canada uh, when that opened up, did a PhD at McGill. 
He, in 2000, was abducted while he was in Vietnam and was taken back to China and has remained in prison ever since. And his family, who are all Canadian citizens, including his very outspoken and, and committed daughter, Tiana Wang, have been campaigning at every turn possible. And they are now experiencing, she particularly experiencing threats, harassment and intimidation because of their efforts to do something about their father's case. So yes, it's wide ranging and it's unrelenting. It's intensifying, not surprisingly, because Canada, and we're talking about Canada, but the same thing could be said of numerous governments around the world, aren't taking it seriously, aren't acting on it, and thus China feels emboldened. So that brings us to Stephanie's question as to why should Canadians care? I guess the simplest question is Canadians should care because this is happening to Canadians. I think it is becoming increasingly clear that a large number of Canadians are deeply concerned about the egregious state of human rights in China. Uh, and in recent years, the ways in which that continues to get worse, Canadians are hearing about what's happening to Uyghurs, are hearing about what's happening in Hong Kong over the last year. Of course, it's now come very close to home with a growing number of Canadians who themselves are imprisoned. Uh, in China, and that includes the two Michaels, but not only. Uh, Amnesty is tracking eight cases of concern of Canadians imprisoned in China right now, four of whom are facing the death penalty. We also know uh, that it's very hard to do anything about that. China is incredibly and increasingly influential and muscular on the world stage, rebuffs uh, any and all efforts to, to try to press for action to do something about what's happening on the ground in China. But surely, when we're talking about what the aspects of that are playing out here on the ground in Canada, we have to have a very different response. We have to, yes, take it very seriously because it matters, but also because it's so much more feasible and possible for us to do something about it. If only we would start to act on some of the I would modestly say, uh, fairly reasonable recommendations that our coalition has made. We haven't actually called on the Canadian government to kick Chinese diplomats out of the country or create a, a huge political crisis with China. As, as Jimmy was highlighting earlier, we've made very sensible recommendations. Establish a hotline. Have a place where it is easy and accessible uh, for people to have a one-stop shopping place instead of being sent around town to check in with 10 or 12 different departments and agencies, so that it is meaningful to try to pursue recourse, and also so that the government can more reliably be starting to gather and compile information to give them a clear understanding about what's happening. So Canadians should care because it's wide-ranging. Canadians should care because this is reflective of the terrible human rights situation back in China, which is increasingly worrying for many Canadians. Canadians should care because this is happening to our neighbours, our fellow students, our co-workers. It's happening to Canadians. And Canadians should care because the solutions are in reach.
So Alex, you have stated one of your recommendations, which is, of course, to perhaps create a hotline that victims of clandestine foreign influence could use and perhaps to rationalize the way that these victims can access government agencies or support going forward. But that's not the only recommendation that you're putting forward. I was wondering, perhaps you could speak to some of the other recommendations that you have as we're finishing up the podcast. Stemming from this recommendation around a hotline and greater coordination, we make a number of recommendations around, we don't want just coordination for coordination's sake. We obviously want it to be leading somewhere. And so it's our strong recommendation that that kind of better coordination and coherence then leads to more effective responses, be it law enforcement uh, when necessary. We actually need to start to see in cases, for instance, where people are being threatened with sexual violence and other violence, clear criminal uh, offenses that is taken seriously for what it is, criminal activity and pursued. So the, 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 the resources, if translation of threats on social media is an issue, the will to make sure that these cases will be taken as seriously as possible. Uh, but it's not necessarily only about criminal convictions. There should be greater consideration of when appropriate considering certain Chinese diplomats to be persona non grata and and even expelled from the country. We do have legislation in Canada now, the Justice for Victims of Corrupt Foreign Officials Act, known as the Magnitsky Act, which even opens up the possibility of sanctions against uh, particular government officials. So there's a lot that needs greater attention in terms of of remedies. Uh, We also want to see this more reliably become an ongoing concern that Canada is raising with China. Uh, Every time a case comes forward, that should be put in front of Chinese authorities uh, so that it becomes part of the ongoing engagement uh, at all levels. We've also noted that there may be a need for some law reform here. One of the things that RCMP and other police forces sometimes say back is that in some instances, it's certainly objectionable and it's harrowing what people have gone through, but they don't feel it always fit neatly into existing criminal offenses. And there may be a need for some law reform here. There's laws in other jurisdictions. Australia has some recent legal reforms that have been adopted that we may need to look at as well. So a variety of other things. So, Jimmy, last question for you. Having gone through, as Alex correctly described, a harrowing experience, if there were someone going through a similar experience, what have you learned that would guide you in advice you might give that person? I think the first thing that I would say to that person is that just know that you're not alone. Oftentimes, the tactics of the Chinese government is to make you feel like you are and intimidate you into stepping down or bully you into thinking that you're doing the wrong thing. And so I would say stand your ground and know that you're not alone and ensure your own safety. I think prioritizing your safety is really important. Starting with that, and then also other things that I always include is ensuring that you have a support system personally. And then taking a step further would be connecting with all of the existing organizations that have been for decades working on this. So a prime example is within your communities, 
within my community, there are students for free to bed, there is CTC, there are the community organizations that are based in Ontario. And then taking it a step larger was with our allies. So we had, I actually had pro-democracy groups like Shen Shui. We had a lot of Uyghur activists from World Uyghur Congress that were reaching out to me from across the world. A lot of different allied nations are talking about these and have a lot more experience in regards to what are the tactics that they use. So to get that systemic support, I would say look to allied organizations. And of course, Amnesty uh, is a huge one that has been taking on the human rights violations in China and all of the other nations like Tibet and Taiwan and Eastern Asia. And so I would say that the one thing that I always emphasize for individuals specifically going through this is just know you're not alone and stand your ground because truth and justice will always prevail. Thank you so much, both of you, for speaking today. Chemi, I just want to say uh, thank you because you're sharing your extremely awful experience with uh, our listeners, and it must be awful just to relive that. And so just speaking that truth is so important to raising awareness of this issue. We, I can't honestly thank you enough for doing so. And Alex, you've just done great work here with Amnesty International. As we're closing out, I, I just want to thank you again. <laughs> but uh, also, is there a place where Canadians can learn more? Uh, absolutely. So certainly the report itself is a very good place to learn more. It's available on Amnesty's website, amnesty.ca. I think if you just put in the search terms, harassment, intimidation, China, Canada, it'll readily come up. I think a lot of the organizations that are part of the coalition, the Canada-Tibet Committee, the Canadian Uyghur Society, Toronto Association for Democracy in China, the Falun Dafa Association, Canada-Hong Kong Link, Students for a Free Tibet Canada. Uh, all of those organizations, I think, also have um, background available on their websites and you know, social media. So it's out there. Uh, there's more and more media interest as well. The Globe and Mail in particular has been paying quite a bit of attention to this recently. So even following what, you're, uh, what people are seeing in media is, is another way. Wonderful. Thanks very much. And uh, we'll continue to watch this uh, issue closely, uh, especially because it's uh, not going away anytime soon. To our intrepid listeners, we look forward to speaking with you again next week. See you then.